Federal contractors are reacting to a couple of rules coming from the Biden administration. One requires them to report so-called greenhouse gas emissions. Another lets lower-tier subcontracting count towards prime small business goals. There are complications, though, as we hear from Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And Stephanie, why don't we start with the rule on credit for lower-tier subcontracting? Comments have closed on that. What's it all about and what did the council say about it? Well, as always, thanks so much, Tom, for having me. And this is something that strikes very close to home for a lot of small businesses and the prime contractors that partner with them or use them as subcontractors. This proposed rule came out of the Small Business Administration as a response to something that happened in the defense bill that was passed a couple years ago in fiscal year 2020. And this was to mandate that prime contractors can apply credit for subcontracting with small businesses at lower tiers. One of the issues that we find in implementation of something like this is that without privity of contract, prime contractors, you know, they have contracts with their immediate subcontractors, but they don't have contracts with the ones at lower tiers. And so it's really hard to get information or data from someone you don't have a contract with. And so we've highlighted several issues with this proposed rule. We are supportive of claiming credit for small business subcontracting. I think that helps the small business base. It helps encourage large businesses to work with small businesses. But there are some implementation concerns we have here. So in other words, if I build a, I'm just making this up, a radio that goes inside an airplane and that subcontractor builds the case for the radio, it may go out and subcontract for the knobs on the front. And so I should get credit for the value of the knobs towards my prime dollars. But I don't have privy to the contract for the knobs that my case sub makes with that knob maker, the lower tier. That is a good example. I would say, you know, the Biden-Harris administration has put a tremendous emphasis on utilization of small businesses and whether those are historically underserved communities or other kinds of set-asides, just small businesses in general are receiving a lot of love from the Biden-Harris administration The problem that we face in a rule like this is because the prime contractors don't have insight into third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier suppliers or subs. And in many cases, those small businesses that are providing the knobs in your example might not be accustomed to tracking the kind of information the government wants, or, or certainly they might be reluctant to hand it off to a company they don't have a contract with. So there are some implementation hiccups in the proposed rule, and we are trying to work very closely with the Small Business Administration to help address those. Right, because there's really no limit to how far deep you can go in the supply chain or the string of contractors, and you probably get diminishing returns. Say the knob maker has a subcontractor for the set screws on the knob, and I know that people are saying, are you kidding? Radios all have touchscreens. They don't have knobs anymore. But then the <laughs> I maker... was just thinking that. But then the, the maker of the set screw has someone he buys metal from, you know, metal rod to make right, the exactly, set screws. Exactly. And Somebody the refines rod, that metal, etc. Right. Yeah. And the metal rod producer buys ore and so forth. There's no end to it. <laughs> there is also the question within this proposed rule of how much information is enough? How much does the prime contractor have to substantiate the information it receives? Does it have to go out and certify or verify or, you know, otherwise make sure that the information is correct? And so, again, a lot of room for movement here. I would say that this dates back to another defense bill back in 2014, and this is not the first go that the SBA has had at an issue like this. The fact that it's 2023 and we're talking about something that sort of originated back in 2014 shows how difficult this can be. Right. 
We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Besides, there's a little bit of play in there anyhow because most of the contractors and the government are exceeding the statutory small business goals anyway. So, you know, how much do you need to claw back the next 0.5% or 0.025% for the uh, set screw on the knob, I guess. That'll be our watchword here. And let's get to the sort of the bigger gorilla in the room, and that is this greenhouse gas emissions. There's a twist in here with respect to the relationship with the government that makes it complicated. Tell us about that one. So, This is an issue also that the Biden-Harris administration takes very, very seriously, and that is disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and having companies set targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And all of this is towards an eye toward either mitigating or at least preventing some element of climate change. That said, the administration is working with the Securities and Exchange Commission on commercial companies. This proposed rule came out Luckily, we got an extension because there's a lot to unpack here. We got an additional month to comment on it. And I think industry used that and the public used that additional time really well. The wrinkle that you mentioned is something that I've talked about with lawyers. And I would say that, you know, PSC, Professional Services Council, does not offer legal or accounting advice. That said, we highlight policy issues. And one of the policy issues that we've come across here is there's something called scope three emissions. And scope three emissions for a company are those emissions from the end user and other, I'll say, adjacent entities, right? Those who use your products. And I think the end of the day, the government for government contractors is that end user. There doesn't seem to be sufficient or really any at all information in this proposed rule about how the government is going to report its greenhouse gas emissions to the contractor who is required to collect and disclose end user greenhouse gas emissions. So this is really not necessarily a do loop, but it is a complication where you might have the Department of Defense or military service needing to report its greenhouse gas emissions to a contractor who then has to report it back to the government. And depending on where you're operating, depending on what you're doing with the capabilities contractors providing, could actually provide national security information that is then disclosed publicly. And so I think at the end of the day, the administration needs to give a lot of thought to how this reporting structure will work and what the government's role is in it. Sure. And notwithstanding the fact that you don't have any control over a customer's emissions, even if you could find out what they are, it's going to vary all over the place. In other words, if you sell services to the Capitol Hill power plant factory, I don't know what burns there, but they still have smokestacks to create steam for the Capitol. That's one thing. And if it's just a agency that occupies half of a floor of a building and it's just people coming and going, that's a whole different greenhouse gas deal. And there might be different reporting by the government itself. We just don't know yet. I think that's true. And I think also if you think about how much of work goes overseas, so not just foreign military sales, who's the end customer, who's the end user there, is the government of name a country who receives military equipment really going to report back to the contractor their greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, it really is something that deserves a lot of thought uh, going forward. And I really hope that the recipient, you know, it's the FAR Council who received these comments, take that into consideration. It's a lot to wrap your head around, and I'm not entirely sure that there's an easy way forward. Sure. And Lord help the contractor who sells fuel to the military burn pits. Then you'd be wrapped up in CO2 gas for decades. Science-based targets may look a little different for that company than others. Sure. And this week marks a year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and a lot of your member companies have been involved in helping the Ukraine effort. 
maybe just a quick top line rundown there. Yeah, so February 24th is the anniversary date. And we always hesitate to call it an anniversary date because it makes it seem like a happy occasion. But on February 24th, 2022 is when Russia invaded Ukraine. And we have pulsed our members. Now, when you think about U.S. assistance to a country like Ukraine, a lot of times you'll hear about Gimlers, HIMARS, Javelins, etc., military equipment. Our member companies are services companies. And we wanted to really unpack what they've been doing you know, not only with the United States government, but for the benefit of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. And I would like to give you a couple of examples. We're releasing a compendium of examples of this, but, you know, the day that the invasion occurred, there was a member company that was literally talking to the Ukrainian government, signing a contract and moving all of the government's critical data to the cloud so that the Russians couldn't block it or otherwise manipulate it. We had companies that used State Department programs to deliver medical supplies, tactical equipment, PPE. It's logistics piece of it, not necessarily just the equipment. We had companies that were monitoring refugee needs in neighboring countries, whether they were Moldova, Poland, or elsewhere, studying and reporting on civic shifts in Ukrainian society. A lot of times in the last 12 months, we've been hearing how strong and resilient civil society is in Ukraine. You know, you've got grassroots organizations popping up to move people, to help people internal to Ukraine and PSE member companies have been on the forefront of that. And the last thing I wanted to mention is, you know, we have the specter of Russia and its chokehold on Europe regarding energy. And, you know, we've seen that so often in the headlines online about how they threatened to cut off supplies. So we've had member companies, the services they provide through U.S. Agency for International Development are to provide hot water, power, heat to the Ukrainian people through generators and repairing the infrastructure. So, you know, as we mark this one year occasion of the Russian invasion, you know, it's amazing how much the Ukrainian people have been able to do. And I'm just so pleased with the support that U.S. companies have been able to provide to help them through it. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom, for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at 
numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. 
So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time 
on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.